Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Erin Yoshi. For the month of March, I'm doing a podcast takeover to uplift women's voices for International Women's Month. In an effort to create the world we want to see and bring equality to the art world, I've kindly asked Man One and Sourdough to step aside this month and allow for myself, a woman of color, to take the reins. To their loyal fans, do not worry, they will return after their month-long sabbatical, refreshed and ready to go. Now let's jump into it. A little about me, I go by Yoshi. I'm a creative strategist who paints murals. I'm a curator, event producer, and I've created festivals and built community-based art projects for about two decades. I've also painted all over the world. I'm a former nonprofit executive, so I've seen the art world from the ins and outs, from the administrative side and as an artist. And I'm going to be bringing you some of my favorite women in the creative field to share their knowledge and experience with you. They're brilliant, raw, and powerful, and have so much to share. So get ready, because you're not going to want to miss the gems they're dropping. In today's episode, we have two women from the Treasure Struggle Collective, Nancy Hernandez and Cece Carpio. Nancy has spent the past 25 years of her life incorporating art into the Bay Area movements for social justice. She got started in her civil disobedience on the student walkouts of California's Prop 187, and she brought creative resistance to the fight against the prison industry, the criminalization of youth, and the demand for accountability for state-sanctioned murders of young black and brown people. She is a member of the Indigenous People's Power Project, which trains Native communities in direct action tactics for the defense of land, water, and life. She co-founded the bike co-op Bicis del Pueblo that refurbishes bicycles in the southeast neighborhood of San Francisco. She is also one of the artists who climbed up 375 feet to drop the resist banner above the White House just as Trump started his presidency. And we also have Cece Carpio. Cece tells stories of immigration, ancestry, and resistance. She documents evolving traditions through combining folkloric forms, bold portraits, and natural elements with urban art techniques. She likes to examine her ancestral practices of tattooing to document histories, progress, and cultural beliefs of her people through time. Cece is from the Philippines. She has produced and exhibited art worldwide. She is currently the gallery manager for the San Francisco Arts Commission and is a public art advisor for the city of Oakland. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. So thank you so much for being a part of today. I'm so excited. Welcome to Not Real Art. We are here with the amazing Nancy Peely and Cece Carpio of the Treasure Struggle Collective. These are the leading women of Treasure Struggle, and I'm super psyched to have them with me today. We are family. We are friends. We're crewmates. We've been rolling together for a couple decades now, and I love these ladies with all my heart, and so I'm so blessed to have them aboard to pick their brains because they are as smart and as creative as they are sexy. So, you know, they're just women that hold it down in all the different ways. So thank you so much, Cece and Nancy, for being here today. Welcome to Not Real Art. Hey. <laughs> hey. Okay, so I wanted to, you know, just kick it off by asking you guys some questions. And, you know, if you could just tell our viewers for who don't know, you know, like, what is Treasure Struggle? And what does the crew mean to you? Cece, if you could kick it off. <laughs> 
Well, Trust Your Struggle is a crew of visual artists, photographers, muralists, designers, silk screeners, videographers, freedom fighters, lovers, all those different things, brothers and sisters. And we formed a crew, a community, but essentially we're also a bunch of homies who love what we do and do it alongside our community, painting in different parts of the world to build solidarity, but also to really elevate messages and histories and stories that are that are often not told. Often of folks like our family and the communities that we belong to and wanting to be able to highlight those messages and those stories in a visual way, mostly has been through murals and exhibitions. It's kind of some of our prime platforms that we come together in, but definitely have extended to a lot of different formats. I mean, Nancy would definitely be able to let you know more about like some of the many actions she's taken in, in different parts of this country and the world. And also now with what we have with social media platforms, really trying to elevate that as well. But we are kind of visual translators of people, communities, and groups and organizations that we partner with, translating messages so that our stories can be amplified, our stories can be heard, and putting a little bit of swag in it. Nice. And what about you, Nance? I love that description. That was the mission statement right there, Cece. I feel like it's a crew of people that I feel very dedicated to and uh, in line with and love and support visual translators, visual communicators. I think that art transcends all kinds of boundaries. So I think uh, a lot of walls are considered a way to divide people and we've been finding ways to paint them and bring people together. So. Uh, and then sometimes floors. <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes the sky. Sometimes in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, um, we fly too. <laughs> <laughs> we fly, we hang, we do all types of stuff. <laughs> Get out. That's right, right? Hey, it's all about getting the message out. So all you know, the elements, all the elements. <laughs> for real. And being creative about it. You know, it's like we can't do the same old stuff that everybody else has done. There's gotta be a way to kind of break from the norm. So, you know, both of you guys, I feel like you've been rooted in social justice causes since I've known you for for years. You know, what kind of drew you in originally to starting to organize and kind of work in community based work? What about you, Pili? I considered myself an activist way before I considered myself an artist. But as part of my activism, I was always asked to make banners or make T-shirts or make bandanas or make masks or make security bandanas or make trajes or make whatever, you know. And so by, you know, learning how to make things, I think I have used art as part of my creative resistance. I feel like the banners that I got to learn how to sew on, how to message. And that's why I was motivated to learn how to sew and how to paint and because we had something to say. And so then I feel really lucky to be a part of this crew where everybody's super talented and like hella like went to art school and like that is a full-time artist or does tattoos all day on people or paints walls all day on people because everybody's so good at communicating visually. I feel like, um, yeah, big ups, TYS. When you talk about selling t-shirts, it reminds me of like one of the first times we met you sold me a shirt and you're like, yo, for you, the homie hookup, 15 bucks. And I found out later that they were all 15 bucks. <laughs> and I was like, because, you know, you didn't have like, right, there was like no sign or anything. So I was like, oh. Do you remember what the t-shirt was? No, I forget what the t-shirt was, but it was some community event and you were tabling <laughs> And yeah, and there was no sign with prices. So I was like, yo, how much is this shirt? And you're like, I got you for you 15 bucks. And I was like, oh, that's sweet. All right. And I totally bought it. And then years later, you're like, dude, they were all 50 bucks. I was like, oh, <laughs> but that's why you're so good at hustling shirts and hustling things. What about you, Cece? How did you first start to get really connected? I grew up in a small village spot out in the Philippines and then came out to San Francisco, Daly City, living in the hood. I grew up with an illiterate great-grandmother who, like, my main source of communicating with her was drawing wherever I could to 
to be able to tell her like what I learned in schools or other things that she couldn't read in the newspapers or anything. So it has always been my means of communicating. And then I got here and I learned kind of the language and the analysis of political education. I mean, I don't think that's something that I fully even understood, but I was always kind of been living it. It wasn't like one day I'm going to be like, oh, I'm going to be doing social justice work. I mean, growing up poor immigrant as a woman, it's, it's, our whole life is political. I mean, it's always been kind of the life in which I navigate this world. And, and it's the way I feel like I'm surviving this world, you know? Totally. It's like how we react to what's going on around us and how we communicate even just to find some peace or even just to get out what we're thinking or experiencing, you know, it is. I don't even think it's even like reaction, but it's kind of just also like, this is how we've learned to engage, you know? I mean, it always was. And then now they have all the fancy words and all the academic words to describe it. But I think like there's so many people doing this work that, you know, you'll probably never read about them in textbooks and you'll never hear the neighbor making tamales reporting the cause, but all of those definitely should account for anything. If anything, those are the ones that actually really sustain the work we do. Totally. And so how do you guys feel? You know, Treasure Struggle started in like 2006. Some of us started working together in like 98, 99. But how do you feel like over the years, the collective has shaped you as an artist and creative? Just the longevity of it is actually mind-blowing in terms of the relationships that we form with each other and the people that we've met, I think, is definitely some of our biggest assets. And the commitment and the dedication of, of each member is to, to the work that we do, but also to each other and to the people we serve. It's constantly what keeps me inspired, just to be able to even find a group of folks who are like, this is what we do. And and that's just it. And not to say that it's always been easy or not to say that it's always been smooth even, <laughs> but we're still here and, and still doing the work. So that's I, I feel like that's a big testament to, to who we are and what we're trying to do and the folks who are supporting the work that we're doing. I feel that that network and that support and just having that is so encouraging and motivating in continuing it because you know people think like oh we you've been traveling around the world painting walls and yes that's amazing but it's not fancy most of the time (laughs) you know half the time we're like out there on the heat or the rain or a typhoon or you know tornado season just like watching the wall dry or getting our paint washed off or traveling in buses with suitcase filled with spray paint, wearing the same clothes for days because we don't have, you know, a real place for it. I mean, it's not, it could be a little grimy. <laughs> and that's what, you know, we don't necessarily always post those on social media. Oh, we miss you too, Cece. <laughs> I, it totally reminds me of like in the first tour, you know, it's just like we're sleeping on the floor everywhere. We're like, you know, we were like so grimy, pulling all of our stuff. And, and it was just like we were so young, you know, we were so excited. It didn't matter. We were just there to do work, meet amazing people. It was such a special time or like even the time with when we were all in Mona. We had this 15 passenger van named Mona. We named her Mona. You know, we all rolled in the van and and like we had a crew rule like everybody's got to wear deodorant. Like deodorant. It's <laughs> <laughs> a law. Yeah. Yeah, please help the rest of I remember when we showered, we actually showered with a hose that we tied oh to a fence over the fence. Some people need yes. to hose down before they're allowed to get in the in Mona. Yes. <laughs> and we showered with the hose. And that's how it was, you know, but we were down. I mean, there was at one point we had a group towel. <laughs> 
left with a towel i don't know what happened to other people's towels but <laughs> i do like, appreciate the amount of scaffolding y'all have built in your lives you guys don't equal 10 feet together like y'all are hella tiny and you guys have not... painted so many square feet <laughs> on this planet and like i don't know what the ratio is of of uh feet that you take up on the planet versus how much paint you've put out there and us collectively we have painted like thousands and thousands of square feet of wall space i love it our like artistic footprint versus like our eco footprint <laughs> <laughs> but no nancy that's not true we actually make 10 feet one inch together okay <laughs> it's collective Okay, so even like that makes me reminisce, you know, there's so many stories, but were there like for you, Peely, were there standout moments? Was there something that really like when you think back about times with the crew, were there standout moments for you, you know, that just stands out to you as a great memory with the group? Man, every kid's birthday party, every wedding, every every art show, Every time we put painted stuff and built stuff or, you know, finished something at the last ass minute, but then it was amazing watching the evolution of everybody, you know, turn into the most talented people we could possibly be. Because we have spent so much time together, I feel like, yeah, we're great artists, but also having seen each other grow just as people, there's really something special about that, that if you like impacts the art that we create. I mean, we could go back in stories when we were just like grimy out on the floor doing this and other members surfing on our couch. But now like seeing where we're at and what people have built and what are people continuing to build is kind of really impressive. Totally. It makes me proud that like, you know, we can grind on projects together, but then we also like get brunch and just like <laughs> spend birthday parties and and weddings are really fun. So, <laughs> yeah. I know we need to get another one soon. I know, man. That needs to happen. <laughs> that needs to happen. So, Peely, you know, you've done a lot of like arts actions on your own, kind of curating them, organizing, as well as painting in. Tell us a little bit of the backstory behind the climate strikes action that you guys did on Montgomery Street. I think that one of the intersections that I'm most interested in in the art world is the intersection of art and direct action. I think that the places that I feel like I've been able to contribute the most is in places where we're exerting, you know, creative resistance and calling truth to power in some way or trying to leverage political power in some way, but also sometimes just like to heal wounds that have happened. A lot of the art that we've created has been in direct response to police violence. So a lot of the times when we're asked to paint something, to print a t-shirt, to paint a mural, to paint something on the ground, you know, to help a family mourn a loss that it's hard to cope with because of the un injustice of it being like a law officer paid by the state to take a life, you know, and then to get away with it. So a lot of the art that has pulled me in has been art out of necessity to communicate injustice and demand some sort of reparations, you know? That's why the, the call to defund the police has been something that so many artists have jumped to support because we can see an instant impact when we defund the police and put that money directly into things. Like in, in Austin the other day, they bought an old hotel and made it, you know, like SROs for people that were formerly homeless. Like, why not take money out of the extra that gets dumped into militarization of homeless people and put it into actually solving the problem? instead of just policing the problem. So I feel like a lot of those calls have been put out by visual communicators and artists in many different formats. And that is a powerful way of swaying where we're going, you know, where we're prioritizing our funding, where we're allowing our tax dollars to go, what, we're, what kind of policy we're allowing to be created in our name, what kind of wars we allow to be waged with our funding, with our money, you know? The places where art and, and, and direct action intersect, that's where so you'll find us at. For folks that don't know, what's a SRO? Single room occupancy, like a, you know, very low income housing. This also could be like transitional housing for folks who've just gotten out of prison, rehabilitations, folks who are moving 
towards not being houseless anymore. So the climate strike, what was that about? Okay, so there was this group of old ladies, right? They call themselves the Thousand Grandmothers, and they're an awesome group that has been trained in direct action and civil disobedience. And they've chosen to stand up against the large banking industry and how they are seeing so much of the environmental impact that indigenous people are calling out into the world as unjust that is being funded by these huge banks, you know, that these multinational corporations, I guess, are like funding these pipelines to go through indigenous communities where they don't have consent. And so the ladies are like, let's block the five major banks that are funding pipelines right now and and put pressure on all of them to divest from fossil fuels. Right. And so they locked themselves to the front doors of like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Chase, Citibank. And basically they blocked the ent- the traffic on Montgomery Street, which is like the Wall Street of the West. You know, it's like the street downtown that has all the banks on it. And so as these old ladies blocked the traffic, you know, the cops, if they're going to like arrest somebody, they're going to have to arrest this like 70 year old or like 60 year old older woman. Right. And so they didn't arrest the people. They just let them stand there with their banners holding the traffic. And so once the older ladies had held the traffic off, the artists came in and were told to like paint on the ground and the paint was distributed and it was a mixture of clay and pigment. Basically, all of the artists were pouring earth over the concrete in downtown San Francisco, creating images of the world that we would like to grow in the future. And there's a call in the middle for the Green New Deal. Uh, and so that was on Montgomery in California. And that's so it's blocking a cable car line. It's blocking traffic. It's blocking, you know, business as usual in the place where business as usual is really expensive. And so I think that the the use of paint in that action was beautiful. And the use of a non-toxic paint was very strategic because it was going to be washed down the drain. And so it basically was dirt down the drain, which, you know, I don't feel bad about that. And I think that that is important in what I feel like we are contributing to the art world as as a crew. You know, we got to look at what's the environmental impact of our medium and what's the impact on our bodies of the mediums we choose to use or to promote. So if we're telling people here, you're going to use this, you know, you're going to get your hands in this. You're going to spread this. It's got to be something good, right? And so people feel better after painting with the earth. And I think people took a moment that day, at least when we blocked all the traffic, where all of the the banks were blocked because there was old ladies locked to the front doors (laughs) with banners that said, um, stop funding fossil fuels. I think that we were able to allow space for people to paint different images of the world that they would like to see. Since a lot of art materials are very toxic, it's so powerful to see something with such large capacity and large scale, but also done with environmentally friendly and healthy products that aren't going to get anybody sick or have negative repercussions on the environment. So it's like super full circle. It's such a great example of, of how to do an amazing community action. It was like almost zero waste because all of the paint was mixed in five-gallon buckets. So it wasn't like... You know, when you're going to go buy hella paint, you have to buy it in a plastic container and then you have hella plastic containers left over. We mix the powdered medium together in, in five gallon buckets. So then there was no waste. And I think it's also prioritized the whole notion of this art is created to build awareness and to do education. And it's not vandalizing like you went and pretty much recycled its own. So I think it was beautiful just to be able to use reusable materials, biodegradable materials for the very message of what he was for, which is to save our environment. I mean, the whole purpose of the old ladies being there, trying to block out the banks is because we're trying to save our planet for us and the generations after us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So see, you know, you got to take part in an action at Standing Rock. And can you tell us a little bit about how that unfolded and what you were out there doing? I was invited by this amazing, wonderful Danae woman named Wahela Johns, who is now kind of heading the energy initiatives with this new administration. But Wahela is part where is 
have taken lead in the Native Renewables Organization, which essentially is training indigenous folks to create renewable energies and distribute renewable energies in, in the reservation, but also just in many different places. But as an act of solidarity and as an act of support to the Sioux tribe in Standing Rock, they gifted water protectors and the folks who are taking a stand on ensuring that they don't build the pipeline by providing them solar panels. So I was there essentially to help her deliver and document that process of the gifting of the solar panels, but to also learn about what is going on in real life in person. And it was one of the really humbling, most amazing experience. And Pili actually was there also about a month or so later, and she could probably tell you more. But I mean, what folks didn't see on screen was how organized it was. I mean, there was parts of it that was spontaneous, but for the most part, like there was someone waking you up at eight, there's workshops lined up all day to ensure that folks are knowledgeable of what's really going on, but also are equipped to handle what might be happening or what can potentially happen, whether it's direct action training to like the history of the indigenous fight and to ensure that it is indigenous led and that, you know, there was elders and youngsters coming together, having conversations about what are next steps to be done. I mean, it was, you know, the first time I was there, it was probably couple of thousands, maybe a little more or less. And then the next time I came back was during Thanksgiving of that year. And there was over 10, 20,000. And to have that amount of people in that land and have it organized in, in a way that like, you know, traffic was controlled. Everyone ate brilliant minds conducting workshops and training and education, like almost every hour of the day. And folks were kept warm in below 16 degrees temperature. It was one of the most powerful organizing I've ever experienced in the short-lived life that I've seen. So it was really kind of humbling to take part in that, to see that and be there and be part of it. And, you know, the fight continues as we know it. But yeah, no, I mean, just to be able to learn from amazing folks, I mean, including Wahela, but including Pili and the amount of people that was there to support and the types of people that was out there to support. I mean, it was, I mean, I go back to it and I'm just like, I'm still awed by just how organized and how brilliant some of those tactics were put in practice. What about you, Pili? How was your experience out there? No matter what, the defense of land and life is what we as humans are here on the planet for. That's all we're here for. And either you're with it or you're against it. I'm very honored to be one of the over 6,000 people that were camped out there to say that. I mean, that's that's a huge showing of people who in the middle of winter were willing to stand on a front line when our government was shooting at people with water cannons. So I don't know. That night was crazy because it's like, yes, everybody's saying all day water is life. And then but it's like so cold out that they were shooting like water at people on the front line, like with the possibility of killing them. I took away from that, that the people need to work together and you have to stop the pipelines by any means necessary. Props to all the black snake killers. With both you guys, there's so many stories. There's so many places that I feel like both of your work has gone. Both of you have been a part of. I just wanted to touch briefly on a little bit of water rights, Nancy, because, you know, you held that down for so long as the project director. But could you talk a little bit about, I feel like, Water rights is a project, but then also your experience going to Palestine with water rights. My homegirl picked me up the other day and she had her water container with ice in it. And it was that container that all the volunteers got. And I was like, man, you had that for seven years. She was like, yeah, that's my favorite one. And I was like, I felt validated in asking people to give up single use and offering them something reusable and gathering people with the intention of painting with water as something that we are motivated to give gratitude to, pay respect to, like understand the value of, you know, honor, respect. If it wasn't for water, we would not be able to survive. And we allow corporations to treat it like shit and governments. We allow governments 
and corporations to treat it like shit. And some of us, we treat it like shit ourselves too. So I just feel like the Water Rise Project enabled us to put water into the forefront of art projects that got people to work together on thousands of square feet across the world. Uh, it was a four-year project. And in those four years, initially we were supposed to do 10 murals, but I think we did like, we did more than 14. It was 14 plus extras. Cause when we did the ones in Palestine, that was like so many, but they were smaller ones and it was like multiple ones. We tried to paint as many square feet as possible across the planet with communities who wanted to participate in the project speaking about local water conditions. And so I think we as visual translators used our skills to help people to tell their own stories of struggles going on about water. So we visited places where they are trying to get dams brought down that are destructive to the rivers and the fish and the people and the plants. And we went to places where water is being used as a weapon. You know, like seriously in Palestine, we saw water weaponized against people. Seeing how there's lots of communities that have struggles going on to gain access to clean and potable water. One of the projects was in a province in the bottom of South Africa. The setup of the community had porta potties, which just needs to be more access to potable water and sanitation. And this project gave us the opportunity to ask people a basic question about water. And we saw a variety of just a range of where people are at. Cece was a part of painting a project that was talking about the plastic bag ban that people in Oakland had been fighting for. And I think that, you know, the, the intention of the plastic bag ban in Alameda County was to reduce the amount of plastic going into the ocean and into the trash and to become conscious of us trying to minimize our waste, minimize the amount of uh, refuse that's left over after every meal. And so I think that, you know, the images painted in that mural really speak to our understanding that this capitalist society right now is creating so much waste and is being shipped off to different places that there's no away. So I think that the Water Rights Project, you can look up on YouTube or Google search to see a series of different murals painted in all these different communities. And we spelled it water with rights, like W-R-I-T-E-S. So check the hashtag on Twitter or on Instagram and you can see some of the pictures of those projects that took us, wow, to like, like 12 different countries, <laughs> like so many different places, you know? Like at the same time, while Nancy and a team were in Palestine, Cece and I were in the Philippines. And so Cece, like to be able to take the team and to go to paint in the Philippines, especially because it's your hometown, like what was it like to go back? You know, I mean, you go back often, but what was it like to go back there and do this project? It was amazing. And it was hard. <laughs> I was able to visit places that I've actually never been before. That was definitely special. We also planned this tour in the middle of monsoon season <laughs> and typhoon season. <laughs> so we wanted a really rainy time. And then there was definitely other moments where it was really hot. But with this project, I mean, being able to continue building with some communities that we've already have develop a relationship with and then others that we we met during that trip was amazing. I just remember so many different moments in which I believe this was in Palawan where it was raining throughout the day and we finally got a break from the rain, but it was night and it was dark. So they rigged like this whole electricity post to give us lights and created like bamboo and tarp shelters so that we could paint through the night and um, just kind of like the brilliance and creativity of the folks that we were able to meet so that we can actually go there and, and finish and continue our work was amazing and the work that folks were doing we painted a couple several different murals in Palawan and it's actually one of the leading places doing a lot of water treatment and water management in the nation it's really leading work and, and recognizing how relevant and important preserving our waters are, you know, in an archipelago of 7,000 islands. This is essentially what we really need to learn and do because the water issue there with the massive typhoon that we get, I mean, we lose islands. We lose people's homes and inhabitants. So it's really massive, the, the initiatives and the relationship that people have 
you know, this island people to water with water of like half the year pretty much raining. What was crazy and amazing about that particular project is at the same time, three years later, that very place were actually destroyed by the typhoon. But the mural stood. It's just another reality check of like how real this topic is and how real and how important this is in different communities and the different ways in which it impacts people's lives. You know, Standing Rock is like the pipeline and not being able to bring water to the folks who need it most. And places like the Philippines where it's islands is like the flooding and the management of water to make sure that we actually have access to clean water. It's an ongoing list we really need to break down like how relevant and water is in order to sustain any living thing in this planet. But for some folks, they actually deal with this reality in such harsh ways. It's not our purpose on the planet to make our living by extracting resources from the planet, you know, and they were stopping people who are considered pirates out in the rainforest who were trying to harvest things or trying to log, and they would confiscate their equipment, confiscate their saws. Eventually, they all, they kept you know chaining them out in front of their office, and there's like this big pile of them. It's like a sculpture of forest defenders' trophies, weapons that they had taken away from people who intended to destroy the forest, and showing everybody that that's not acceptable in this place. And that you know, I really feel like that part of what Palawan's trying to teach the rest of the planet, you know, how it is to decolonize. It's not just about extracting the resources for for the gain of some corporation that's probably in some other ass country that's fucking colonizer anyway, but really like protecting the forest as a resource and protecting the place as a resource. So they're promoting themselves as a tourism place. They got beautiful beaches you can go to. You can go scuba diving and see crazy colored coral. Like it's just a beautiful place. And I feel like they're on the right track if they're looking at how do we survive in relationship with nature rather than needing to destroy it in order for us to survive because that's we're not going to make it if that's how we do it you know shout out to the homies in palawan yeah that the sculptural piece which is like you know chained up chainsaws they would basically find people who were illegally mining and take their chainsaw from them so they had calculated how many trees they had saved by each chainsaw because of how many trees could be cut down by each chainsaw per day per year and so they they could then calculate how many trees they had saved in the forest, which was super dope. And as soon as you roll up in the front of their building, they have this massive sculpture of all these chained up chainsaws that were um, right in front. And it was super powerful. We went up north to the Cordillera as well. Can you tell us just a little bit about that? Well, the Cordillera is such an amazing mountain range with so much deep, intense history of both, you know, indigenous cultures, but also of the fight for their survival. And with this particular community that we visited, we were there with a community who was, you know, fighting against the mining, which, again, is another process in which water can be extracted, but not necessarily distributed in the right place to the right people, to the right community. And it's actually, you know, killing mountains and trees and forests in, in order for folks to just really highly capitalize. And many of them are foreign companies that are not from there. So they're not tripping of the very people that actually have been taking care of this land since time immemorial. Yeah, up in the Cordillera, we were able to stay and camp out with the folks pretty much using their body as blockades against like folks who are trying to get their bulldozers out there to go and mine the resources that they've been the stewards of, their ancestors have been the stewards of, this is their ancestral land. So, you know, it's in the same country, in the same nation, but it was like the fight for water there looks a little different than Palawan because for mountain folks, once you take out all those resources off the mountains, off the ground, I mean, it's literally like you're taking the blood out of a pumping being that has been what their livelihood, what has been reliant on, but not just like their livelihood, but what their history, what their story, what, who they are as earth-based people, as indigenous peoples. I mean, their relationship with the earth, with the planet is not something 
that you can just piece by piece and separate and cut and mine or or drill onto. This is it's not just a fight for like you know an environment water resource. I mean all of that, but it's essentially the fight for their lives. They can't imagine themselves going anywhere else beyond the ancestral land in which they've been living, their families been living, their ancestors been living for all thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, there were all these stories about like how the mine came in and promised jobs and promised all these benefits to the community. And then all it had done was give really toxic, really dangerous jobs to folks that were working there and really polluted the the natural water as well. So folks were like getting sick and a lot of people had actually passed away from working in the mines. And dug up holes on the ground to pump up the blood, the very pumping thing that, that allowed the region to live. So they, they literally created holes on the ground where schools were, you know, located. And then a, a tornado or a typhoon would come and literally just, it would collapse. And there's stories of people who are living, who are going to school, watching their school collapse because the ground is not stable enough to support the very foundation that they've been taking care of for all this time. So they're digging hole to pump the blood out of the mountains. And what happens when you do that to a being? They die. And that's exactly what the fight is about. You know, they want to keep living. They want to keep surviving. They want to be in their ancestral lands. They want to have the resources in order to sustain. Even that is being taken away from them, you know, and, and they need to fight for that when it's, they've been there from generations and generations. since I mean, they're the indigenous people of those lands, you know. The folks that were organizing this station, it was right on the road and it was kind of organized by an elder woman. She was the leader, but a lot of community folks organized it. And so each day it was like one day was women, one day was men, Thursdays was co-ed. They would camp out overnight and if anybody tried to bring in mining equipment, they would lay down in the mills road. And it was really strong. So we were blessed enough to be able to spend the night with folks there and just kind of learn and be a part of their experience. And these folks are sharp. They have it down to like analysis of like what's happening, but also the analysis of like what their tactics are in order to make sure that everyone is safe and everyone's taken care of. So, so yeah, <laughs> you know, it was... always kind of sticks out in my head, which is like totally off topic, but at that moment was remember killing me softly. Me softly. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew you was gonna bring it. <laughs> Because there's this, so we were going to cook chicken. They were going to cook a chicken for everybody, which was so cool because we're all camping out overnight. And so there was like this chicken walking around and there was like, they get a little stick and they kind of like massage and tap the chicken to get the blood flowing. And so like, it was super funny. To contract the blood rather. Oh, to contract the blood. And so like folks started singing Lauren Hill's Killing Me Softly as they were tapping <laughs> the chicken. Of course, can hella sing because they're Filipino. But, you know, it was like amazing to have that kind of go down. And I just remember that super fondly <laughs> by the by the night fire. <laughs> so if CC ever surrounds you with a group of friends and starts serenading you, run. Yeah. If you ever start singing Killing Me Softly, you better go. <laughs> Peely, I got to bring it back to this. We have a new president, but four years ago, around the same time, you were doing a massive action that caught global attention. Can you take us back to the Resist Banner? Yeah. How much time do you have? I can't believe he was allowed to serve his entire term. Okay, so we pushed back on hella things throughout the whole four years, right? And there was lots of things that I feel like we lost. Right now, I would like to say that I'm happy that we are getting away from issuing mining permits. Top one on my list of gratitudes today is that we're no longer issuing mining permits on sacred burial grounds or sacred spaces. Like, can we just not do that? Let's just not do that. If we're not good tenants, we're going to get evicted. Yeah, we are going to get evicted. The earth will live on, but we won't be here on it. Unless we alter our ways of teaching kids how much trash each individual should be creating with our time here. Would you mind sharing us some stories about that time when you guys went up and did that massive banner drop? The woman who designed the banner, which was 75 feet by 35 feet, is an indigenous woman from California. So shout out Shumash Nation. 
the creating of that banner was such a big vision because it wasn't just saying, I'm going to paint this wall or I'm going to paint this train. It was like, I'm going to paint this banner that somebody's going to carry up a crane and then walk off onto the boom and then drop it down. And then the wind is going to swing it over so that we can all get the photo right on top of the White House. I mean, that was like kind of brilliant, right? And that's what we did. Yeah, it it was kind of brilliant. I mean, I remember like all of a sudden you ghosted for a while and we're like, where did Nancy go? And then I, you know, I see on the news. Yeah, I see on the news, <laughs> Nancy, and you had like your SF hat on. And I was like, or I think it was a hat. Or, yeah, or or maybe your shirt or something. But, you know, you're up there and I was like texting with you. <laughs> you're up there, like, oh, my God, Nancy, hold on. Don't text me right now. Like, you don't need to respond. But no, it was the most amazing thing. And I feel like, you know, I still see people today, so many people today that spoke to them with with the resist, you know, you see it everywhere, but that you guys climbed all the way up there, 300 feet, was it? 375. Holy cow. 375 feet. That's, that's insane. It's crazy to think about that. Do you get scared of heights? (laughs) I like surviving and the thought of not surviving scares me. So I'm not like a daredevil, maybe a little bit. (laughs) Once in a while. (laughs) Sometimes I feel like there's things that are worth putting our life on the line for. And so if you look at the Portland action that we were a part of, that was, you know, hanging off a bridge for 40 hours to block a shell ship, part of the shell fleet that was trying to drill for oil. And I feel like that's taking the banner to a place where it can have an impact. That's where we're at, at the intersection of art and activism. I feel like I like the way we've been able to use creative resistance and paint the world that we want to see, inspire people to fight for, you know, taking the dams down if that's what the community says needs to happen, protecting the mangroves. If people understand that the mangroves are what protect them from the typhoons, read the writing on the walls. That's, that's what I'm saying, right? Right, right. It gave people hope, you know, at a time where so many people felt like, oh, man, we're going to have Trump for four years. You know, the fact that you guys went up there and did that, I feel like was like such a sign of of hope for so many people. So I was happier the time that he tried to show up here for a fundraiser and we blockaded the road. So his motorcade couldn't get access to the front of the hotel. So they tried to come in through the back of the hotel, but they had to stop in the middle of the freeway. And then they had to hop a fence. There's helicopters taking pictures of, you know, number 45 hopping a fence in California to get into his fundraiser because individuals had blockaded every possible route for him. So he is unwelcome. And I think he knows that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I feel like there's just so many things that, that y'all have done that we've gotten to do collectively that it's just always such an honor to roll with you two. You know, I feel like all the stories over the years, there's so many special times that we got to share together. So I'm just super thankful that you guys are willing to come on here and like share some knowledge and share some time with me today. If people want to follow up with you, what are you working on right now? And then how do people follow up with you individually? How about you, Cece? What are you working on right now? And how do people follow up with you? I am excited to partner with the National Domestic Workers Alliance to create ancestor cards about the movement of historical, how they built up domestic workers movement, you know, the very people that are in the front line who have taken care of other people's family in order to feed their own or communities. I mean, the list goes on and on, but I mean, like, Harriet Tubman was one of the first domestic workers, you know, caretakers who are out there putting their lives to take care of our peoples. And also just the work that the National Domestic Workers Alliance is doing is is always been so impressive. I don't know. I'm just so excited and honored to be able to support their work. A couple of other publications, and it's not quite publicized yet, but I'm going to be doing a publication with a Syrian-Palestinian woman here in the Bay Area who has been in the forefront of like food justice work, but also about Palestine. So I'm excited to build solidarity and do work with that. And a couple of different buildings that might be coming up soon. But yeah, folks can follow me on Instagram. It's mostly just the cute things that my nibblings do and the crew and... 
random thoughts of the day, but sometimes I put my art there. So you can follow me there. Are you ccarpio.com on your website? Yeah, I need to update my website, but yes, that is still up. <laughs> I haven't touched it for, I think, over a year now. I don't even know. But yeah, I'm there, and, and folks can just get a hold of me. Yeah, you can follow me there. Hit us up in the emails. Yeah. Great. And what about you, Nancy? What are you working on, and how do people follow up with you? Well, you know, I'm a multitasker, so I want to tell you two things I'm working on. The first thing is my garden, because that makes me happy. My garden's lit. Like, I've hella taken good care of these plants and this dirt, and I'm really proud of it. So that's been bringing me joy. And so send me seeds. And I've also been growing this space that people are growing in the Excelsior District of San Francisco that's been doing food distribution and resource support for families that are going through it, that are struggling. A lot of, you know, people are up for eviction because this moratorium is supposed to expire and I know that there's like federal stuff that's supposed to happen, but I know landlords are also telling people that they got to go. People are accruing tons of, you know, debt of not being able to pay their rent. So we've been working on trying to stop people from getting evicted. And we're trying to just deliver food to people and make sure that they have the food and supplies they need to stay home if they need to stay home. So just trying to be supportive of the community right now. So if anybody wants to sponsor, donate or volunteer, to drive food or to bike food to people's houses um, or if anybody wants to support that work, you can holler at me at Nancy Peely on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you. And you can find our collective at trustyourstruggle.org or .com. We're called Trust Your Struggle Collective. And I just want to thank both you wonderful ladies. I love you both. I look up to you. I'm so proud of you. Every time we get a you know, shared time and space, I always feel blessed and full afterwards so thank you both for being here on a part of not real art i love you both and thanks so much hey there thanks for tuning in please be sure to like this episode write a review and share with your friends on social and if you haven't already done so please press the subscribe button and follow us on instagram at not real art world if you're an artist be sure to apply for our 2021 artist grant at notrealart.com. Sourdough. Out.